0: Well, we have some more lore here from the Botic College? A company called Mayfair Games started making unofficial D&D supplements in a line called aids. No, not, not the Antacid, a product line. They're, they're books. But that was in the early 1980s. TSR threatened to sue them. Not for the content of the supplements, but because they said they were compatible with AD&D. In the 90s, they went back to court over how well Mayfair abided by their previous agreement. In some corners, this wasn't seen as a move to enforce the agreement, so much as a move to force Mayfair out of competition. Thankfully, that was the last such instance in D&D history. Uh, no, wait, I'm, I'm, there seems to be some paper stuck to the back of this. What, what's this? One D&D? Oh, right, one, open GL, 1.2, oh, okay. And now we present to you Thaco with Advantage.
1: Welcome to Thacko with Advantage. We're two friends that have been playing D&D a long time. While we both love lots of other RPGs, D&D is a gaming tradition that transcends whoever owns it at the moment.
2: Hello, I'm Jared, and I'm the review gnome at Gnome Stew. I've been gaming since roughly 1985. In addition to writing reviews at Gnome Stew, I've got my own site, WhatDoIKnowJR.com, where I write additional reviews and opinion pieces on a variety of RPGs.
1: Hi, I'm Ange, and I've been gaming for over 35 years. In 2014, I started writing for Gnome Stew, and I've been running the Gnomecast, the Stew's podcast, since 2017. And in 2021, they gave me the brains and I became head gnome. I've even got a hat.
2: That's the important part. <laughs> it is. It really is. All right. Today, we're introducing a new segment that we hope to never use again. In Dissonant Whispers, we're going to address something that we feel compelled to address, which might cause people hearing it to take psychic damage.
1: This has been a very frustrating time for those of us who love D&D as a game. Jared and I have been talking about this a great deal off-air, but since we are a dd and d focused podcast, it's worth mentioning the whole OGL 1.1 drama that has been happening in the community. I am disappointed in the actions and rumored actions of Wizards of the Coast executive team. At the same time, I want to support the designers and creatives who work on D&D because the content they have put out shows a love of the game and the community. My hope is that this whole situation invigorates a new wave of exciting design in role-playing games as other companies develop their own systems as they come together to create the Orc license. D&D is not going to go anywhere. Even in the darkest days of TSR's death spiral, or 4th Edition's missteps, the game still existed and people still played. There are a ton of gamers out there who are completely unaffected by the OGL situation, but the hobby and the community as a whole are hurt by this failure from the Wizards of the Coast. Their apology is a step, but they need to show that their corporate executives have gained a better understanding of how the RPG industry works, and how the community works, and that they will respect that community.
2: And for my part, I just wanted to state that I think the uh, leaked document would be terrible for the D community and it's important to establish trust and to keep your promises and the 1.1 document which originally seemed to be a leak but the uh, statement that wizards put out kind of confirmed that that document was written by them and while they claim it is a draft version it was definitely something that was in their minds that they wanted to implement and i think that it shows that they have created a lack of trust in the community that used to depend on that ogl as a bedrock of the community additionally i'm happy to see that conglomeration of companies that are coming together to create the orc so that we have a decentralized open game license that will allow creators to share content D fifth edition has been my favorite iteration of the game and i greatly respect the designers and editors that have contributed to the game as well as all of the third party developers whose ideas have ignited the fandom. I think corporate leadership is doing all these people a disservice with their lack of clarity regarding the circumstance.
3: After
1: we look at the games we're running in the campaign journal, we'll be looking at some of our favorite moments from earlier editions of the game, and if those moments are unique to that edition. Then we will have some recommendations of D&D-related content for you to check out in our downtime research segment.
0: Let me just finish up this campaign journal.
1: Okay, as expected, the kids' game didn't happen. (laughs) I am shocked. (laughs) One of the kids found out she had an important meeting she had to attend for the Black Student Union with the high school's principal, and there was no telling how long that meeting was going to take, so she bowed out, and admirably, the rest of the group didn't want to play without her. But we still got together, because I was helping buy subs for everybody, so, you know, food. (laughs) So I introduced them to Sushi Go and Carcassonne. And it was a good time, even if Kevin chose violence in the Carcassonne game. (laughs) By pure luck and chaos energy, he obliterated everyone else in the game to the point that we stopped counting points.
3: (laughs) It just got to the point where, like,
1: Kevin has obviously won. He's got more points. I don't want to bother counting them. (laughs) We're probably going to try again in February or March, depending on breaks, because... We've got a mix of high school students and college student at this point, and it makes getting together a little harder.
2: Yeah, I imagine.
1: Yeah, with everything they've got going on for their senior year or college courses, it's just really hard to schedule. My Saturday game did happen, though, Um, though we were down Cargill's player due to him having to travel for some family stuff. He was able to stop in at the end of the session, but he really only got to like Take part in like the last round of the last combat of the session. <laughs> he has told me that when we play this coming Saturday, there better be things for Cargill to blow up. <laughs> at the end of our last session, the characters had defeated the undead twirl and the other zombies at the abandoned church site, but they hadn't quite dealt with the source of the evil that was causing the drowned dead to rise up. And honestly, I hadn't really planned this out very well. <laughs> the players kind of fixated on the source, causing the dead to rise, and I realized that I hadn't really planned of a way for them to get rid of it. And they kept talking about spells that were way higher level than they actually had access to um, <laughs> like hollow or Hallow. So knowing I needed to come up with something, I basically discussed it with Jared, who is my secret weapon when it comes to my campaign. <laughs> I knew the PCs were going to the tortle village and planned on talking to Gurdlu, the elder of the village. They got back there and they explained to him the situation And he told them he would take some time to ponder a solution. Meanwhile, the rest of the Tortle Village threw a party to thank the PCs for saving them from the undead menace. We had a fun time debating what a Tortle party would look like uh, and what the food would be like. (laughs) Uh, We decided the food would be a lot of stews and soups with fish in it. As for the music, we decided that the Tortles liked a heavy bass line. Because they've got those deep chests and that echo chamber. <laughs> and then, of course, that led to a discussion of that there might be a turtle in Sharn that does dubstep as an MC in the clubs in Sharn. <laughs> that, was, that was kind of fun.
2: Oh, goodness.
1: Girdlo came back um, and he asked Sax, the cleric, to assist him with a ritual to finally cleanse the evil. Because the PCs were too low a level for the big cleansing spells. I decided that Gurdlu and Sax would cast a modified version of Ceremony, which is a first-level spell, mostly designed to perform stuff like marriages, funerals, and other religious-type rituals.
2: It's a neat catch-all spell, too. I really like it.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it is. I don't know that it has a whole lot of use in most combat for D&D, but at the same time, looking at it, I'm like... Yeah, they could totally modify this to sanctify Mm -hmm. this area, especially with the two of them calling on their separate religious influences and working together. This could totally work. Because it was an hour-long cast, though, Gurdlu asked the other characters to assist his warriors in defending them from anything that might be summoned to try and drive them off. Because what could possibly go wrong? The evil wouldn't possibly try and summon more (laughs) things to defend it, would it? So over the course of the hour, the PCs fended off three waves of wraith. One wraith to start, easy peasy. Two wraiths, a little bit harder. And at the end, three wraiths. That actually kind of pushed them through their paces. Funny enough, the tortle warriors, who were basically just the CR one quarter portals from the book, (laughs) did really well. They had just enough hit points to survive one hit from the wraiths. And even though none of them had magic weapons, they hit every single time, and at least two of them critted. It was kind of awesome.
2: That's what I, I like about uh, 5e and the whole bounded accuracy thing. is It takes, I mean, you have to be a very, very high you know distance there before something doesn't have a chance to do something. Like, even something low level has a chance to do something.
1: One aspect of the scenario that I felt didn't really work like I wanted, though, was that Sax's player was kind of stuck doing the same thing throughout the whole encounter. I continue casting. I wish I'd had more time to think about it and work out a way to make that whole scenario more exciting for him. Because while it made sense in the the grand scheme of the narrative, and the other players had fun basically dealing with these waves Of wraiths, I felt bad for Sax's player. Mm. After that, they spent one more night with the tortles, working out the details of a meeting between the tortle village and the refugees who want to settle nearby. In the end, with their using their sending stone to communicate back home, it was basically agreed that the refugees are going to send an escorted group out and come to this area to meet with the tortles, which is going to take them about two weeks. So the PCs are going to take those two weeks to go explore around the area a little further, and hopefully run into some of the things I've got planned that I want them to run into, but I don't necessarily want to railroad them into finding, but I have plans and I hope they find them.
2: I have pondered before how to have a ritual work in combat that doesn't completely take the person doing the ritual out of the fight, because I like that idea that somebody has to do something to complete a ritual or... To finish assembling something or do a puzzle or something while everyone else is fighting things off. But it's also not a lot of fun to just say, okay, this you keep doing what you're doing. And I've thought about doing something where they have to take an action to initiate whatever the ritual or whatever it is, and then spend a bonus action each turn to keep advancing it Mm -hmm. they're kind of feeling like they're spending something on the thing and maybe they need to stay close to the thing but they aren't necessarily spending their primary action and they still have a chance to do other things
1: that's probably a good idea because we could have done that sax is what is his his domain it's basically the domain that gives him fire spells so he has a bunch of long-range fire-based spells he's got the Firebolt, Cantrip, I believe he has access to Fireball now. Mm -hmm. These are spells he could do without having to give them concentration while still spending his bonus action to keep the ritual going.
2: A lot of cases, you don't need to actually penalize a player. You just need to make them feel like their character has to keep doing something. So by saying you have to spend your bonus action, maybe you, you can't concentrate on something else, but other than that, you can take your action and do whatever then it still feels like you're doing something instead of being tied to whatever you're doing for five to ten rounds.
1: Hindsight is twenty twenty. It wasn't until we were in the encounter that I'm like, crap, <laughs> this is going to be really boring for Doug.
2: I only say that because I have done the exact same thing that you did, where it's like, oh, this would make perfect sense for them to do this the whole turn. And then you just keep going back to the person saying, yep, you're doing what you're doing. Cool.
1: He did have a bit <laughs> of a, a neat narrative moment where we like, like I mentioned, tortles like bass. Mm-hmm. So we decided that Girdlew's chanting for this was like the uh, like, what is it? The Skexies in Dark Crystal. Oh, <laughs> you know, and like he was basically doing his Silver Flame ritual chants mm-hmm. kind of in tune with that to kind of make them kind of link up musically. Mm hmm. But, I mean, that's a minor thing when everyone else is getting to try and lay waste to wraiths and coordinate dropping fireballs on them.
2: (laughs) So, thankfully, we got to play our Midgard game. So I was happy. Our Dragonborn Psy Warriors player missed last session. So what we determined he was doing while the rest of the group was trudging through the sewers looking for the smugglers tunnels was he was interviewing family members to take over their family because there was a big scandal. And the people that were in charge of his family got into trouble for running the uh, illegal prison that the PCs busted up several sessions ago.
1: We didn't burn it to the ground.
2: He did not burn it to the ground. What was interesting is I had him come up with like broad ideas of who he was interviewing. Then for the family members to get an idea of their actual history and personalities, I was using the D&D tarot deck and pulling cards from that to see what was coming up. So that was kind of fun. I didn't, I actually kind of didn't want to plan it too much so that I could just see how much we could improvise these characters as, you know, as we were doing the interviews. But what we were doing as well is he would interview one family member and then we would cut to the sewers where the pc the rest of the pcs were at and then they would get to a certain point and then we cut back to him doing the next interview because i wanted to make sure even though everybody was separated We were still juggling the spotlight time enough to where everybody was still actively doing something.
1: I mean, this is probably a topic for a whole other episode, but (laughs) you can split the party and still make everyone feel involved. You just have to basically shift that spotlight frequently.
2: And honestly, I think um, I I know we're talking about D&D, but I actually kind of learned that when I was running Marvel Heroic, because, you know, as long as somebody gets a turn, it doesn't matter if that turn is... With the rest of the characters.
1: I think I'm going to make a note for a Gnomecast episode.
2: <laughs> I'd say put a pin in it, but we don't have Bob here.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, Bob has all the pins. <laughs> People pins who don't listen to Misdirected Mark are like, what the hell are they talking about?
2: <laughs> so the group in the sewers, one of the things that they ran into was a special ooze that if you gazed into the depths of it, it would paralyze you. And cause psychic damage. <laughs> and what was fun about this for me, and I hope it was fun for the players, is because we were still on the tactical map of the sewer, I just told everybody, if you make it to the stairs, you're fine. We're going to roll for initiative and just move how, how you want to move. One of the characters was still close enough that they were within 30 feet and could see the ooze. So at the beginning of his turn both times, he still had to make a save to make sure that he didn't get entranced by the ooze by gazing into its depth. <laughs> so. It wasn't quite a chase, but I don't, it didn't feel like it was wasted, (laughs) and I didn't feel like I was hand waving it either. I kind of liked it. I hope you guys enjoyed it.
1: Well, it was funny because we we realized it was there, and we're like, oh, hell no. We're just going to run. We're not even (laughs) going to try and engage with this. (laughs) And then, like, we're all running as fast as we can, and it's chasing us, but I think it could double move to get. 20 feet
2: yes yes it was dashing to move 20 feet
1: (laughs) the only reason mazrum got stuck in its range of its gaze is because he's a dwarf and he's (laughs) he's not the speediest of guys
2: i enjoyed it i thought it was kind of fun so then the group managed to make their the rest of the way out of the sewers and we ended up we had a lot, I actually think we also had a lot of fun coming up with those family members for, um, for Marin's family.
1: I loved listening to those interviews. <laughs> I, I'm like, each each family member felt very distinct from one another. <laughs> I definitely, you know, as as an observer, I had my choices that I would have made.
2: Well, I like that he also kind of thought outside the box because he didn't end up just appointing one of them. He appointed two because they had overlapping skill sets that would complement each other, which was kind of neat. I like that.
1: And let the poor artificer student go back to doing his (laughs) studies.
2: I just want to go back to And (laughs) He would would
1: have just set the family state on fire or something.
2: Yeah, and also the PCs before they left, I did want to make sure they checked out what was left of the portals so that they verified there was two different portals. One which led to somewhere on the material plane and one that led somewhere that might be in the uh, shadow plane. But both of the portals were rapidly drying up because they were using uh, pools of water. So the puddles were getting absorbed by some trees that the uh, red cap had made grow through the portals. That was kind of fun, especially telling the uh, the dragon not to stick his head into. Yeah,
1: the- Ivy definitely had to have an argument with him. No, do not stick your head in the rapidly closing portal.
2: <laughs> but he's curious. So um, we kind of got to the middle of this and the current open missions that the party has are not really time-sensitive. One is exploring a uh, temple that is being excavated, and the other, they're kind of waiting for a friend of theirs to come back from a scouting mission out in the wilderness. So they went ahead and took their downtime. Again, I always like downtime because it does kind of give people some chance to customize. It's just a matter of finding good things for people to use their downtime on.
1: That don't require charisma checks.
2: Everyone except for uh, Marin, our Psy Warrior, decided they're going to learn languages. Actually, no. Our Dwarf Cleric is trying to basically build up some favors to build a new temple. And I'm reworking. We were originally using some of the uh, downtime rules from Xanathars, but I'm kind of reworking the court influence downtime from the uh, Tome of Heroes from Kobold Press because I like how some of the uh, downtime rules have worked in that because the downtime rules in that, instead of saying you need to do X number of things for this amount of time, you basically build up a number of points. And you can, usually you can spend like five points to do something major, but in the course of play, if it's something that you've already been working towards, you can spend one of your points and actually use it for advantage. It burns that point, but like, it is basically like you calling in that favor early and then you have to, you know, build it back again. But I kind of like that it gives you that option that, you know, you're not just waiting until you completely finish this. You're building up these points that you can spend on things from the downtime. Yeah. I kind of like how they did that. Uh, A lot of the downtime, the new downtime that they put in that Tome of Heroes works that same way. So I am reworking his downtime to fit into that paradigm. And Marin learned how to use tools from the artificer that he definitely did not appoint to run the family. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but I liked it because it also gave him a chance to spend more time with that character too. And then for the end of the episode, we had a ra- uh, Ratatosk show up because several episodes ago, Ivy, our uh, Asimar divine soul, had prayed to Balder to tell her where her Valkyrie guide that is her ancestor had been trapped. So now Balder sent this Ratatosk with a note telling her how she can get Lady Ire back and... She's basically found out that there is a prison a basically a a fiendish prison that is a freelance prison that she has been put into. They have a legal writ and they have to do several things they have to get someone to vouch for her from Valhalla they have to get someone to forgive her from the uh the plane of the undead, and they have to get it notarized by a lawyer that is a devil from hell. <laughs> And they got a neat uh planar token that lets them uh travel along planar pathways. I don't necessarily mean for them to have to do this next,
3: but <laughs> it is
2: something they can do whenever they want to. And it gave me the opportunity to rope in some of the uh, path the plane breaker material from uh, Monty Cook Games. I really enjoyed last session, and it was funny because we had an initiative, but we didn't really have a combat.
3: <laughs> yeah.
1: No, it was. I enjoyed last session. It was fun.
0: Welcome. The Dungeon Masters Workshop.
2: In today's Dungeon Masters Workshop, we're going to look at some of our favorite moments from different editions of D&D, and if those moments would still work in other editions of the game. First off, let's look at Beckme. Um, do you have any favorite moments from Beckme?
1: First, tell me what Beckme stands for.
2: It stands for Basic, Expert, Companion, Masters, and Immortals. Kay. It was the set of box sets that basically comprised D&D, not a D and d
1: To be completely honest, embarrassingly, I have never played this version of D&D, so I <laughs> cannot speak to any favorite moments from it. Um, by the time I started playing, first edition was well into its dominance of the game, and while I had heard of the box sets, I never really interacted with them. So how about
2: you? Well, honestly, my experience with Beckme was beh. <laughs> basic and expert we didn't get to uh companion masters or immortals and um my favorite moment from Me, which is basically the first time I ran with a group that became my regular D&D group through middle school and high school was I had my my players make up characters and then I had them stranded on an island with a vampire <laughs> which they had no chance in hell of actually injuring or damaging or doing anything with so they basically ran around the island until sun the sun came up. And this was my entire plan, was I just wanted to see them run around the island until the sun came up. They got to fight some wolves and some bats once in a while, but mainly they were just running from this vampire. <laughs> <laughs> I could definitely still run that scenario in other editions of D&D. It would still be a really mean thing for me to do if I did the first level <laughs> character. <laughs>
1: And I think the 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 thing with that type of scenario is like obviously with your kid, you I mean you're just doing what you're doing. You don't necessarily understand <laughs> the the uh kind of the philosophy of play or anything like that. But to run that now as an adult with adult players, you would have to telegraph pretty clearly <laughs> that you are not meant to fight this. <laughs> <laughs> Because I, I have I have witnessed and partaken in, well, not willingly partaken in, but I have witnessed TBKs <laughs> because the players couldn't get the clue that they were supposed to run away. Yeah. It's like the GM has presented a monster. We need to fight the monster. No.
2: <laughs> I think the only thing that probably saved them was that it was extremely obvious that I had decided on this being our first session because we had just watched Fright Night. <laughs> so of course it's like well we gotta wait until sun comes up before before we can get rid of the vampire
1: you know and and of course those days when we were kids and playing we were all like i know we, especially with my college group i was so close with my college groups so we watched stuff together you could <laughs> see when the gm was pulling something from a thing we had all just watched and obsessed over it's not as easy today because i'm not necessarily watching the same things that my group is <laughs> you know so there's there's some overlap and i i have definitely had like a pl- like tj has been like you stole this from from stardust didn't you and i'm like yes yes i did
2: i mean if you're going to steal from anything stardust is a good thing to steal it from it is though. it really is <laughs> all right well let's try this again do you have a favorite moment from AD&D First Edition, and do you think it would have played out differently in other editions?
1: First Edition was my first game, and it was a very, very long time ago, so my memories are kind of fuzzy. I do know that uh, one of my very first characters was Jasmina Tavler. She was a half-elf thief mage, I think. My memories of the game she was in were so fuzzy, but there were there was one thing I really do remember we were in a dungeon exploring and we came across an ogre that for some reason we didn't immediately attack. (laughs) There was something about that scene that told us this guy may not be hostile. And we started having a conversation with him. And it turned out this ogre was caretaker of the dungeon. And he was kind of okay with us adventurers coming through as long as we didn't kill his gelatinous cube because that (laughs) made his life so much easier in keeping things cleaned up. (laughs) You know, and very specifically, this is... You know how you have some of those memories where, like, everything is fuzzy and then there's this one crystal clear memory? <laughs> I remember one of the other players asking the ogre if he had any fleece. And for some reason, that player was obsessing about finding spell com- components. And he asked the ogre, do you have any fleece? And the GM as the ogre responded, fleece? Me got lots of fleece. i happy to share. <laughs> and, like... This is stuck in my brain forever. And as far as would that play the same today, I would say yes, because that has informed how I play every NPC ogre who is not trying to kill the players.
2: That is one bit of hard drive space you're never going to overwrite.
1: Never going to overwrite it. I also remember in First Edition, now I don't know that you can say this is a shining moment of the glory (laughs) of First Edition, but I can remember spending a Saturday afternoon hanging out at the GM's house, sitting on his bedroom floor with him and one or two other players, and we made characters, and we were going to play through a dungeon, and he's got the map on the ground, and he's drawn the stuff, and we start playing, and we die immediately because we made second level characters and he grabbed an eighth level module
2: (laughs) speaking of knowing when to run
1: (laughs) now would this happen today i mean it could probably not because i think we're generally a little smarter about what we throw at our players and i don't know today that most gms would be like oh well those characters are dead let's make some new
3: characters
1: (laughs) i think i think most people today would be like oh my bad i grabbed the wrong module let me put this away and grab an appropriate one and we'll start over like that's not how things were handled by older teenagers in the (laughs) late
2: 80s so i mean maybe now if somebody was playing dcc they would still do that
1: (laughs) (laughs)
3: Yeah, yeah, DCC and any of the the,
1: the OSR stuff, sure. But (laughs) I don't Uh, know that that would happen in a standard D&D game today.
2: What's funny is when you mention the gelatinous cube and, you know, keeping the dungeon clean, I think that's another thing that at some point every DM suddenly realizes, wait a minute, oozes could be really useful for dungeons to keep them cleaned up. Yep. (laughs) So much so that I think I designed several dungeons where there was, um, an outhouse that led down to a uh, an ooze that was underneath it.
1: <laughs> I've never done this, but but someday I'm going to describe a dungeon that looks like it should have been abandoned for a long time, and there's no cobwebs. <laughs> there's, there's no dust. So there's no cobwebs. Oh, that's really strange.
2: <laughs> Gelatinous cubes are the uh, fantasy equivalent of Roombas. <laughs> they really are. They really are. <laughs> All right, so both of my first edition memories basically I'm picking player memories because it's easier for me to remember those because I ran so many sessions of D&D back then because <laughs> those were the glory days when I would run like on Thursdays and all day Saturday and half day Sunday and unless it was summer in which case I was probably running 3 or 4 times for whole days. So
1: Yeah, yeah, I remember <laughs> those marathon days.
2: <laughs> so all right, I had one instance where I was playing a wizard and our party had been fighting a blue dragon. I was the last character left and I asked the dragon to read something that I wrote as my last request and I showed <laughs> the dragon my spell book. And it was the uh, sepia snake sigil spell, which if you um, if you remember way back in the day, if somebody were to read that symbol, it jumps off the page, bites you, and then you have to save to see if you're paralyzed or not.
1: (laughs) I memorized exploding runes today.
2: Exactly. So the dragon arrogantly, you know, fulfilling my last request, reads my spell book, which had that engraved in it. The uh, magic snake jumps off, bites the dragon, paralyzes it. I heave all of my weight into the dragon because we were fighting it in a tower. And I heave all of my weight against the dragon and just let it plummet all the way (laughs) to the (laughs) bottom of the tower. And then proceed to revive the rest of the players and tell them that I beat the dragon. (laughs) I don't think I would have that moment in modern D&D because that was very much that almost kind of adversarial thing where mm-hmm. I was trying to trick the DM. I didn't want to tell them. I wrote uh, Snake Sigil on one of the pages of my spellbook and I would like to tra- trick the dragon into reading it. I didn't want to do that. I wanted to, you know, I wrote it down and said that I had done this and then, you know, handed it to the DM. and They're like, oh, all right, I'll make the save. So that was one of those gotcha moments, basically, that I don't think is a good way to play, but it does sometimes produce some fun moments.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, those, those can be fond memories, but I don't, w- don't want to play that way today.
2: No. And then my other moment also involved one of my player characters and a tower, and it was just my ranger jumping off a tower onto a fire giant. <laughs> which was fun, and uh, basically I got to do my falling damage to the giant on top of... <laughs> By plus 12 for my level being a ranger hitting a giant <laughs> plus the damage that I did with my bastard sword <laughs> and I think you I could probably do that in modern DD. I think it would have been harder in three five just because of all of the fiddly movement rules and there were there were probably rules for every step of what I did instead of just saying I jumped off of a tower sword first to land on the fire giant <laughs> <laughs> all right um so Let's try second edition. Do you have a favorite moment from second edition? And do you think those would have played out any differently?
1: So second edition is also very fuzzy. I also have a complicated relationship with second edition. <laughs> I do remember how absolutely excited I was to buy second edition because I had been playing for probably two years when second edition came out. So I remember going into the comic book store that also had gaming books, and buying the book, and it was mine. (laughs) One of my absolute favorite memories, and I don't know that this is a specific memory, more just a broad thing, is my character Beja Tavler. And yeah, I reused that last name a lot (laughs) with my characters back in the day. She started in first edition as a mage thief because I had a type. And when we transitioned to second edition, she became a bard because she already had a magic loot. (laughs) And the only reason she wasn't a bard in first edition was because that was a whole other thing. Oh, yeah. (laughs) I have a lot of fuzzy memories of adventures and puzzles she took part in. And at one point, she got bit by a werebear, so was on her way to becoming one of those as well. But then the entire party died because we fell in a pit trap. And since the adventure said that there was no way to get out of the pit trap, Unless somebody was on the outside to help you, the GM declared that we all died.
2: <sighs> that's that's fun.
1: Yeah. <laughs> so it's not to say that that type of thing couldn't happen in modern gaming, but it very much was a situation of a literal interpretation of the adventure as presented. Yeah. And not thinking that you could, like if the GM did not think he could deviate from that because this is the adventure he is running. <laughs> and we're all like but we're still alive down here. It's like, we could stand on each other's shoulders. No, 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 it's, it says here you can't get out unless there's somebody on the outside to help you.
3: Uh, okay.
2: The book is wrong.
1: Yeah. <laughs> on, on a more positive note, um, back in the day, conventions often had D&D tournaments that were a big feature of the convention. You, you had to get chosen to progress to the next round of the tournament, and there were usually three rounds. And there were, like, a lot of, you know, there were multiple sessions of the first round, a few sessions of the second round, and then one session of the third round, where the final six or eight players who had made it through would get to be in that last session. And I was happy to make it to at least one of those cons. I was happy to make it to the final round and get third place at one of those early cons, which is saying much, because I was not very confident in the rules. I was very... Much of the like the reason it took me nearly fifteen years before I GMed was because oh I can't possibly GM I don't know the rules well enough because <laughs> there was a lot of that attitude. But as a player, yeah. I'm a player. I'm here, and I earned enough respect from the GM and the other players that I got third place in a in a three round tournament. Those tournaments don't exist today. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure some places do them, but I don't think they would really work today. And I think they ultimately send the wrong message about what is valued in a player at an RPG table, but they were a lot of fun at the time. They they really were.
2: You know what's really funny? On one hand, we did not coordinate them. And yet my story also has to do with a convention and one of those uh <laughs> <laughs> one of those games that was like a multi-step thing that you had to get, you know, voted into the next section. And it was a three part adventure. I only made it to the second one. But Especially the first round was something that really sticks with me. And also, I think the fact that we didn't have to coordinate this, that's why we have a podcast together. (laughs) (laughs) But this was the first convention I had ever gone to. And the person that wrote the adventure apparently was really enamored of kits. And if you don't know what kits are in second edition, honestly... Kits were sort of like a combination of subclass and background, you know, from 5th edition. Every character there had a class and a subclass. So my character was a bard that had the scald kit. We had another bard that had the blade kit, so he liked juggling swords and stuff. And there was another character that had a ranger who had the barbarian kit. According to our backstory, he was my best friend. We got off to a little bit of a slow start. Everybody was just kind of doing that third-person role-playing where it's like, yes, I do this. I will do this. And not really getting into their characters much. And we were having a dinner with some elves, and the elves were supposed to be giving us our mission. And this little mischievous spark went off in my head, and I asked the DM, I was like, do I know anything about elven etiquette when it comes to dinners? And the GM, like, shoots right back at me, and he was like, well this particular group of elves thinks that you should eat in silence and then deal with business later. And I was like, (laughs) thank you for that. And I started making jokes with the ranger during dinner on purpose because both of us were from this (laughs) barbarian culture. (laughs) And I was making fun of him getting like fat stuck in his beard when he was eating and things like. And as soon as we started role playing back and forth, the whole table just kind of, you know, ran with this. And we ended up we got the mission, we started like practicing and coming up, we, we did like this whole montage of training <laughs> that wasn't in the adventure <laughs> at all. And then when we were on the road, I used the bardic knowledge feature, which if you didn't have, uh, if you didn't play a bard in second edition, bards just had this weird percentage to no shit.
1: I actually missed that in that modern
2: incarnations. I know it it wasn't tied to any particular skill it was just the bard knows some some stuff that happened and I picked up that the quagoths that we were fighting quagoths are usually associated with drow so while I was inspiring the party I turned the song into the song about how you know this ancient band of uh of drow warriors using their quagoth uh, soldiers to do to tell all of my players hey look out for drow while I'm still inspiring you and not ending the song and These were people I didn't know. I knew no one at that table. I was not used to being around other people. I am actually pretty introverted when I don't know people. Mm -hmm. And I just, I loved it. I was like, man, I don't know these people. And yet somehow I am just completely alive doing this.
1: (laughs) It's slight tangent. I think that's one of the things I love about role-playing games. I am not exactly introverted, but I am guarded with people I don't know. You know, and that comes from getting picked on in middle school and stuff like that. I tend to be a little wary of strangers, but with role playing games, even if I'm at a convention, even if I'm at a table with strangers, I have permission to be at that table and partake in that game. Yep, that opens up so many doors for just getting into it and having fun.
2: Oh yeah, definitely. And honestly, another slight side tangent. That's why I actually think it's really important that you know you have simple safety tools to reinforce mm-hmm. that everybody does have the right to be at that table and to feel that, that yes. freedom to express themselves and that nobody else can shut them down or make them feel uncomfortable. Yeah. Now, as we've noted, I probably couldn't have done that exact same thing in later editions because bards don't have, I randomly know shit.
1: Like I said, I really miss that.
2: I, I do too. It is kind of a fun ability and I, it sort of exists with the bards getting, um, that, you know, their, uh, jack-of-all-trades thing but it doesn't feel the same because there weren't any knowledge skills back then so this was just you saying do i know something useful about the situation
1: <laughs> it didn't come up in the the, the episode on D one where we talked about the bard class but i was very disappointed in fifth edition's bard class when i looked at the college of lore and there was no no random shit
2: lore should be the thing where you can just pull something out of your butt
1: <laughs> yeah you make an intelligence check and hey you know things
2: yeah <laughs> all right we're on a roll now let's let's move to third edition do you have a favorite <laughs> moment from third edition and would have played out differently in other editions
1: so third edition is modern times even if it was 20 plus freaking years ago um <laughs> i had been away from D for quite some time because of the complicated relationship i had with second and Technically, first edition. Um, (laughs) I felt very constrained by the character options, especially after having been introduced to games like Champions and GURPS, where you can literally build whatever you want as long as it fits what the GM is willing to allow at the table. Even Vampire and Werewolf felt more exciting with the character options than what I could build in D&D. Every single thief I built in D&D felt like the same thief, just with a different name. And third edition fixed a lot of that for me. Lifting the race class restrictions and the stat restrictions was just, I mean, well, there's still some stat restrictions, but anyway, lifting those restrictions and allowing you to be much more flexible Mm -hmm. with what you made, you know, and a lot of my memories are tied to the characters I played. (laughs) Kiana Windborn was the very first character I made in third edition. She is technically the first character I made for a face-to-face tabletop. RPG in the 2000s
3: <laughs> because
1: I had gotten out of playing regularly and a lot of my stuff was online in mushes and that type of thing. But Kiana was actually like, I got together with some friends from EQ and made a character. And she was an archery based ranger that was a total ripoff of Legolas <laughs> from Lord of the Rings, you know, except a girl, you know. That sparked my love for DD again. In that short campaign, she and a the fighter named Eric, who was a Mad Mardigan-influenced <laughs> character, were completely and utterly snarky with each other and still fell in love. <laughs> you know, it was just one of those really fun moments that has lived on. Like, I am still in contact with the GM for that game, and he's like, he's like, that's the pinnacle of my GMing. He's like, Yana and Eric and all of that, that was perfect. I don't know that the instance in the game that started the romance would have happened in a modern game, because I don't think anybody actually puts love potions in their games anymore.
3: Yeah,
2: yeah. It's, there's
1: that whole consent issue. And there was nothing that happened right. with the consumption of the love potion. It was more it just kind of made the characters go, I think I actually am attracted to that person even now when they're not mooning over me because they're they drunk on a love potion.
2: And honestly, it's it's kind of. What happened in Willow with the, uh, <laughs> with the Dust of Broken Hearts. <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah. There was definitely influence there. Yeah. Like I said, he was very influenced by Mad Martigan. <laughs> my character was very instru- influenced by Legolas, <laughs> if Legolas had been a combination of Arwin and Legolas. <laughs> right around the time my now forever game group started playing, Eberron had come out. So we decided to start a campaign for that and my character Jinshana, was a Kalashtar, and I adored her. That <laughs> campaign is just has a special place in my heart. Her classes were a mix of Kineticist and Psychic Warrior, because the psionics book was out at that point, and TJ was not afraid of it,
3: <laughs> like other
1: GMs I have talked to. One of the incidents that happened in that game was we had gone on a long mission to retrieve an artifact. The artifact was a tapestry that it was a map of the region that um, if you had the right tools could be animated to show actual troop movements and stuff like that. It was a very cool artifact. We had been paid to retrieve it by the Kingdom of Brayland. We had done it. We were bringing it back. We were in a small town in the north part of Zalargo at the edge of Dargon. And, well, the tapestry got stolen. <laughs> so we were tracking it down and we tracked the thieves to a lightning rail train. And there we are. All our characters are doing different things, trying to track it down. And Jinshana gets on the train and starts walking up and down the aisle with all the passengers and staring at them intently, using her psychic abilities to scan them and try and find somebody that feels guilty or worried or something along those lines. And just TJ, who was, was the GM at the time, was just like, you're terrifying. And I'm like, what do you mean I'm terrifying? I'm just doing my job. <laughs> We basically ended up having a fight on a moving train. It was absolutely glorious. It was everything you would want in an Eberron campaign. Fight on the lightning rail. We had two of us in the cabin. We had two people up on the roof. We had one person chasing after the train on a horse.
2: Well, once you have a train, somebody has to get on top of the train.
1: (laughs) Yes. Yes. It was just absolutely glorious. In the end, the train was stopped. We recovered our tapestry. The authorities showed up. The authorities were not happy, but they understood that our property had been stolen. <laughs> so they basically, Jen, Shana, and I believe one or two of the other characters, we basically had to perform community service for a week for that town to make up for the damage we caused by <laughs> stopping the train before it got too far. It's so much fun. It's like TJ's response was like, I'm like, Jen, Shana's lawful good, and I'm He is, and she is not lawful good. (laughs) That whole scene was chaotic good, if anything. I'm like, okay. One of my first times GMing was also in third edition. It was for a one shot, and I delighted in making the PCs as odd as I could while still sticking to the standard rules. (laughs) Now, none of this seems too outrageous today, but in 2005, there was still a lot of, there was a sense of what race should play which Uh class. And like, breaking those standards was like, oh... You know, it's not like in second edition where, like, I believe in one of R.I. Salvatore's series, he has a dwarf that wants to be a druid and it's all, "Ah (laughs) haha, because a dwarf can't be a druid. Why not? (laughs) Why not? So my part, the party of PCs I made, the pregens, were a dwarf wizard, an elf rogue, a half elf cleric. That's not too odd, I know. But his half brother was the half orc (laughs) bard. There was also a gnome druid and her husband, the halfling barbarian. (laughs) Oh, and there was a human fighter just because I had to have a human doing something. (laughs) I had absolutely no idea what I was doing for the adventure itself and mostly making it up on the fly and fumbling a whole lot. But the players had fun and we still all to this day remember the halfling waxing poetic about his wife's lovely little gnomish toes. (laughs) I mean, all of that could still happen in today it's just the oddness of the characters don't matter (laughs) because you can make whatever you want and in later editions of the game oh there was also a moment where the friend playing the elf rogue made a comment about the halfling who was doing saying something dumb he's like i believe a village has lost its idiot and the halfling was like who are you calling a villager
2: (laughs) (laughs) that's great that is great so most of my um fondest memories from third edition came from i ran a campaign that went all the way up to 13th level which you know that that took longer in three five than it would in fifth edition <laughs> because of the because apparently back then it was like no at higher levels you really want to have hundreds of thousands of xp between levels <laughs> and part of why that campaign was memorable is my kids were part-time players in that campaign, so I got to teach them D&D.
1: Which is very cool.
2: It, it was really neat. And being enthusiastic and imaginative kids, and also knowing I was going to build their characters for them, they just had to learn how to do what was on their sheets. They decided to have me make them. My daughter had a half-ogre monk, <laughs> and my son had a, a an elf-werewolf sorcerer, which meant Dad had to like start crawling through uh Savage Species and all of the uh <laughs> the uh monsters as as classes uh rules that were in there.
1: Let's be honest, you probably loved it.
2: It was actually it was actually kind of fun. I didn't have a lot of other players that wanted to engage on that level and they wanted to play weird characters, so it was fun. You know, as far as their weird characters go, fifth edition doesn't have things like level adjustments or those uh monster levels, they mm-hmm. just kind of make a pc version of a monster that doesn't worry about their hit dice or anything like that so it's actually easier to make some of those things and if you get something like Gordon and Canaan presents monsters of the multiverse there is a crap ton of stranger character options in there yeah. that would be a lot easier to implement than it was going through savage species and dealing with all of the monster levels to make sure that the werewolf uh, sorcerer who i believe ended up being like a first level sorcerer when everybody else was like you know fifth level because he had to have all of his levels in werewolf before he could be a sorcerer <laughs> but my other uh really memorable point in third edition in that same campaign was i had a friend that was playing a cleric of helm he had a plus four defender sword which he absolutely loved because it was It wasn't even so much for the mechanics, it was that it was a Defender Sword, and he was a Cleric of Helm, the God of Guardians. For that Cleric, that was as good as, like, a Holy Avenger for, you know, for a Paladin. (laughs) And he was defending Missledale from an encroachment uh, from the Plane of Shadow, and he faces off against a Nightwalker. And I don't know if anyone remembers the 3-5 stats for uh, Nightwalkers. These were huge undead creatures, and they were freaking terrifying. But one of their abilities in 3rd edition was they could just destroy magic items. (laughs) And he was fighting this thing tooth and nail, and eventually it just destroyed his defender sword. Oh, That was almost as bad as if one of the party members had died. I think it would still mean something if you destroy a prized magic item in fifth edition, but also knowing like the wealth by level assumptions in third edition, if your DM wasn't being nice, they could literally have just seriously, you know, hindered your character's ability to perform at their optimal level if you destroy something like that.
1: Also, the scale of magic items doesn't really compare. Yeah. I don't think there is a plus four anything in fifth edition.
2: No, everything kind of tops out at plus three now.
1: Yeah. So it's like there's there's definitely a scale of power there.
2: It did feel really epic for him to lose that sword because he had been so proud of it for so long. And it was yeah. like this this fight against this gigantic undead thing that was kind of like the vanguard of that shadow force. But at the same time, I also felt bad because I destroyed his favorite toy. <laughs> 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 All right, let's move into fourth edition.
1: I liked 4th Edition. I liked it quite a bit, but I hated how I had to hide that (laughs) fact from certain gaming social circles. Yeah. There was a group I would get together with to game with on gaming weekends or go to conventions with, and if I dared mention that I was enjoying a 4th Edition game, it would turn into an opportunity for several of them to practice their comedy routines about how awful 4th Edition was. Yeah. I mostly just quieted up and just stopped mentioning that I was playing D&D at all, with my group. Mm -hmm. I brought this up a year or so ago on Facebook about how it was kind of a gatekeeping and telling me that even if I was saying I was having fun with that system, I was obviously wrong. One of the guys from that social circle ended up reaching out to me to apologize. And like, he was not the worst one by far, but I did appreciate the apology. And I think there's still a lot of telling people they're playing the wrong game Mm -hmm. in The RPG hobby, but I think that some of us at least have gotten a better understanding of don't piss on other people's fun. Yeah. Now, one of my early characters for fourth edition was Mikalia, a human invoker. And one of the great (laughs) things about fourth edition was how it had some really unique but flavorful classes to fill certain niches (laughs) in their whole leader, defender, controller, striker roles. Um, The invoker was basically a wizard for God. (laughs) divine class but all of your faith provides you the ability to lay down the wrath of god upon (laughs) your enemies she was so much fun to play because she was arrogant and obnoxious and fully convinced that she was right in everything that she did (laughs) and of course in fourth edition was one of my all-time favorites z my changeling rogue i've talked about that campaign previously spent a, quite a bit of time talking about it in our episode on campaign settings, because I talked about homebrew settings and like the GM ran it as a, cause we only were able to get together a couple, a few times a year. And the GM ran it as each session was a self-contained episode, but he had an overarching story that he was weaving through each session. So we actually ha- felt like we had a real story with our characters having acquired this evil artifact in the very first session And trying to keep it away from bad guys as we figured out what the heck to do with it to get rid of it permanently so nobody could use it for evil. The finale involved trekking out to the Lost Wizard's tower where the artifact had been created, confronting him as the necromancer lich he had turned into, destroying his phylactery, watching as several demon lords showed up to battle over his soul, and then trying to escape the tower as it fell down around us. Now, Z couldn't fly... Um, And her Pegasus Mount, Maximus, was too far away. (laughs) And I believe that Nyx Nyx was the gnome uh, illusionist. She could fly, but she could only carry one of us. And Ashar, the Genasi sword mage, was closer to her. So she was able to lift Ashar up out of the crumbling tower. But Z was kind of left to her own devices. And I believe we all fully expected... For Z to die, tragically, as a hero, crumbled beneath the tower. And I'm like, I'm going to surf the sacrificial table down this crumbling mountain. And the GM's like, okay, make an acrobatics roll. And I got a nat 20 on that roll. (laughs) So not only did Z survive surfing down a crumbling stone wizard's tower (laughs) on top of a stone table, she did it in style. Nice. (laughs) Now... There's a lot there that could still happen today in any 5e game. There are some specifics about the way those characters are made in 4th edition that wouldn't play the same uh, in 5e. Like, I would say that the Divine Soul Sorcerer is very similar to the Invoker, but they have a very different feel. Yeah, Very different feel. So there's similarities, but there's just enough differences that the system does matter in the way certain things get played.
2: Definitely. So... Um when you're talking about your divide between people uh, two different game groups I was not happy with what happened in the 4th edition realms but I did like 4th edition D&D That said I did not run 4th edition d and I played 4th edition D&D and I ran Pathfinder So I often heard that you know all of the uh all of the jibes about 4th edition and I'm like mm-hmm. well, it's it's a different system doing a different thing
1: I, I'll interject slightly there. My buddy Scott, who is currently running the Undermountain campaign I'm in, he commented the other night, because we were talking about the various editions of D&D anyway, mm. and he commented that in a lot of ways, he learned how to run games in 4th edition. Mm-hmm. While he had run in 3rd edition, he was kind of a bad GM. I love him dearly, but I did not enjoy his games. Yeah, 4th edition taught him how to better run a campaign and manage encounters and work with the players um, that he didn't get out of third edition.
2: Yeah, I can see that. So my moments as a player in fourth edition, I had an Aladrin Paladin, which if you know how fourth edition works, I was always going to be like one point behind the curve because Paladin is not like an optimal class for Aladrin to take, but I liked it and I was having fun with it. And because that Eladrin was from the Feywild, every time he would interact with people from the Material Plane, I really played up the whole Stranger in a Strange Land bit. And there was an Eladrin in our party that was from the Material Plane who was a thief or a rogue. And I implicitly trusted them because they were an Eladrin. (laughs) (laughs) And they horribly took advantage of my (laughs) (laughs) naivete. It was great. It was a great running bit. I really appreciated it. And as far as 5th edition goes with that concept, Eladrin are still kind of like, I didn't necessarily like them saying that high elves in the Forgotten Realms were really Eladrin, but Eladrin as a concept are kind of my favorite elves now, because I like that whole from the Feywild type of elf feeling. And I also like that after 4th edition, the Feywild really got more mainstreamed into D&D 5e. So those are things you can pull off now still in 5th edition that I really liked about that character. The other character that I liked was my Minotaur Rune Priest. (laughs) And this kind of goes back to what you're saying about the Invoker. The Rune Priest is really hard to do in 5th edition. Because the Rune Priest was this weird little thing that it was kind of a support role, but it wasn't like the Cleric. And there were these big overall runes that you would know that you kind of layered onto the power that you were using for example there was like this this rune of ending that was composed of the symbols that showed like the end of all things and i love the flavor text for all of these things and if you hit someone with that power and you activated that rune they were vulnerable to damage you know after that and it it just had some neat things like that and it felt like when you were Layering on those rune effects onto your regular powers, it felt like you were tapping into, like, these cosmic symbols that defined the universe, and it was kind of neat. The Minotaur, on the other hand, was kind of a jerk.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I mean, as Minotaurs do. Yeah.
2: We were playing through a scenario, and it was um, an organized play scenario and there was a dragon that was stuck in a wall and there was this whole thing where you were supposed to do a skill challenge to help the dragon get out of the wall and i convinced everyone in the party to leave the dragon there and the dragon was like but i'll get even with all of you you know how how dare you walk away from me i'm like i'm not the one with my ass stuck in a wall <laughs> and this is not i would definitely tell people take the hook don't be a jerk don't do what i did but part of what was the tipping point there is a lot of the published adventures in 4th edition did not use the best advice for skill challenges. And it was almost like in some of them, they would just tell you, you're going to do a skill challenge now. Yeah. And it almost felt, this was kind of me rebelling against that and saying, this does not seem like a good place to do a skill challenge. I'm sorry.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, I, I I, cannot tell you what adventure path Scott was running us through in the 4th edition campaign that Macaulay was part of. Um, but I do know there was a couple of skill challenges from the books that were kind of like, this is, this doesn't, why, why are we doing this? Yeah,
2: there is an exciting way to do this and this is not it.
1: Yeah, this is not it. <laughs> skill challenges are a fantastic idea. Mm-hmm. They just weren't necessarily implemented the best way.
2: No, and even once they were writing better advice for how to structure them in like the DMG2 and things like that the adventures still didn't always follow that advice from the DMG2 where they gave you better guidelines for it. (laughs) Now we have come to 5th edition. What is your favorite moment from 5th edition? And is there something about those moments that you couldn't have done in previous editions?
1: I love 5th edition. (laughs) And looking through my character archive, I have so many 5e characters. Dove, my sorcerer, may go down in history as my favorite character of all time. I've had so many awesome moments with her. Getting money from their first adventure and using it to throw a street party in the rat run, the poor (laughs) section of the city. That was awesome. Taking the rest of the party on a walk into the nicer section of the city on an excuse of we're going to have lunch, only to confront the succubus that had stolen her boyfriend before the beginning of the campaign. The succubus proceeded to nearly kill Dove in one go and leave the rest of the party to fight her in the middle of the city square as Dove lay unconscious on the cobblestones. And then there was uh, rescuing the youngest prince of the king and queen from assassins by polymorphing him into a squirrel so he could hide in her bag <laughs> as she ran away from the assassins. There's Zalus, my dragonborn cleric of Cord in a Tyranny of Dragons campaign. She had the criminal background, so absolutely no religious training.
3: <laughs>
1: I made the character before I realized that Cord doesn't like chromatic dragons, so we decided it was... He was kind of messing around with her and then kind of admired her spunk. So basically decided to make her a cleric (laughs) when she got high enough level that she could actually talk with him. He just called her Sparky. He (laughs) gave her a mug of never ending ale that came straight from his stores. (laughs) And then there was uh, Jared will remember this character, even though the campaign was short lived. Sapphire reigns of the noiseless plains. I
2: love Sapphire. She was great.
1: (laughs) She was my tabaxi order of scribes wizards who was very vain about her fluffy tail (laughs) and once started a fight by lobbing a fireball over the heads of her companions at the orcs and ogres we were observing and declaring (laughs) that this was a now problem. Some of this could have happened in older editions. Some of it probably couldn't. Because again, the edition does inform the type of character that is made. And like a lot of my problems with First and second edition were that the character creation rules were very constrictive. Mm -hmm. Third edition got better. Fourth edition got a little bit better than that. Fifth edition is like, especially if you add in Tasha's to the character creation rules, it's opened up a lot to go weird. Yeah, You can make whatever you want. It's a fantasy world. Do something cool. Do a barrel roll.
2: (laughs) I have tons of... Things that i love about fifth edition from the gm side but i'm gonna go with a player moment here just because it really does to me kind of summarize what i appreciated about fifth edition Mm -hmm. and what it made me realize you know what that moment was that it kind of crystallized i was playing a goliath monk and i was third level and we had a gnome and a halfling in the group and we were in a bad place we were in a courtyard and there was a wall and i looked at my character And I realized I can easily carry both of these people. I can run over there. I am, you know, I am a monk. I have plenty of movement. And if I spend a key point with everything else that I have, I can literally jump over this wall. And I kept trying to find like, there's something missing here. There's got to be something where I need like some other feet or I'm missing some (laughs) little thing that tells me, I don't know, something that tells me I can't use two different movement rates in the same, uh, (laughs) in the same, uh movement
1: they would never do that that would
2: be silly because this was a great thing about fifth edition and it just felt so cool to just be able to pick up the two smaller members of my party put them on my shoulders run at the wall and literally jump over the top of the wall with this goliath monk that kind of opened up my ideas that in 3-5 like if you were to say that i'm going to walk around to the other side of this character even if it's just for flavor to say that you moved you would have, you know, provoked an attack of opportunity for each of those five foot squares that you move through. Yeah, and then in fifth, it's just no. If you move out of their their reach, then you do. So I was constantly doing stuff like I had pictured. I gave him the gladiator background, so this Goliath monk was basically a professional wrestler, and I was describing him doing things like planting his spear and vaulting over the top of someone and kicking them as he was in the air and then landing on the other side (laughs) and then hitting them with the uh, half of the spear and things like that. And it got me so much more hyped for describing what my character was doing when he attacked because I didn't feel like the rules were telling me, no, that would be a tumble attack and you need this feat and this many, you know, this many ranks of uh, acrobatics before you can do it. It was just, I could just say I, I was doing it and it didn't matter. You know, it was just part of what I was doing.
1: Mechanically it was an attack. Yeah. Narratively it was cool.
2: Yeah. And just that that little bit of easing up on the super defined way that movements and attacks and everything work in three five to fifth edition is really what like I, I was just so in love with being able to do that.
0: No time for rest, you two. Get on with your downtime research.
1: Every episode, we're going to look for something related to D&D that we want to pass along to our listeners. It might be products, websites, videos, or podcasts, but it will always be something interesting that we think will enhance your D&D experience. For me, not to dwell too much on the OGL situation, but Legal Eagle, a YouTuber, has a great video out talking about the situation. Now, he doesn't go into the specifics of the OGL 1.1 itself um, or any potential legality of that. Instead, he talks about the questionable legality of the original OGL In addition to similar issues with the new one, he doesn't go into specifics on the points in OGL 1.1, but he does talk about whether or not these things are actually legally defensible to begin with. Now, he's an outsider looking in on the hobby, so it's a nice insight into actual law stuff. So many people have been prefacing their, (laughs) their thoughts about the OGL with not a lawyer. Guilty. Legal Eagle is a lawyer. So it's worth seeing his take on it. Link in the show notes. Although I will say, while I definitely agree with everything he said, that doesn't necessarily mean that a small company or designer could withstand the legal costs of mounting a defense against wizards should wizards sue them. But we shall see. You know, Hopefully they will make their wisdom save when they, <laughs> they come forward with what they're doing next.
2: Yeah, and, and I've watched that video, and I definitely, you're right, it's, it's enjoyable, it's worth watching.
1: I mean, all his videos are great.
2: Oh, definitely. They're just not
1: always nerdy.
2: Yes. <laughs> so, um, for my selection this time around, not to dwell on the OGL.
1: <laughs> it's kind of been a thing.
2: Yeah, I know. Um, my downtime research recommendation is just going to be to check out some of the products that have been made under the OGL over the years. If you've been wondering about some of them, now's probably the time to pick them up because who knows what's going to happen. Specifically, I wanted to call out Green Ronin and their 3rd Edition Mega Bundle that is on Drive-Thru RPG. There's over 50 different books in that. These are all from 3rd Edition, but a lot of them have a lot of material that isn't about rules or specific to 3rd Edition. It's setting information. It's a lot of imaginative things. There's a lot of adventures in there that you could get good outlines for you know future adventures in there's details on green ronin's freeport setting there's details on uh there's a book about wood elves and a book about dark elves there's ideas on running D in biblical settings in ancient greece and rome so that bundle is it's 30 dollars for all of these different books and i actually had these all in my third edition days and a lot of them, like, wheedled their way into my games one way or another, even if I didn't use them wholesale. So, I would recommend checking that out.
1: We are happily part of the Misdirected Mark Productions Network, so we wanted to give a shout-out to another MMP show. If you're enjoying our show, also consider checking
2: out... Bonestone and Obsidian. Jesse and Robert take monthly deep dives into the dark sun setting and discuss it across all editions of DD.
1: We have used up all of our resources, so I think it's time for a long rest. I hope this adventure was rewarding for you. We hope you go exploring with us when we have another adventure.
0: Dice rolls and hit points with armor and sword play. Dungeons and dragons, my heart this game holds sway. Characters, stories that make my soul sing, these are some D&D favorite things. Vampires on islands while we wait for daylight, a caretaker ogre with pleas that were not right, a PC blue dragon that tricked the DM, these are some D&D favorite things. Jumping off towers to stab a large giant. Magic loots where bears and bards who are defiant. Pit traps and puzzles and dismembered limbs. These are some D&D favorite things. When my life bites. When the world stings. When Twitter makes me sad. I simply remember those D&D things, and then I don't feel so bad. Let's sing about favorite characters: Beja Tavella with her magic loot, Kiana Windborn an archery brute, Jasmine Tavella half elf mage thief, then there's Jashana causing all that psychic grief. A changeling rogue, the in the stone. A paladin naive, but still not alone. Mikala the invoker, she's a wizard for God. That minotaur room priest saying, screw you dragon. These characters I've loved have pushed me to sing Of adventure, magic, and action that brings Joyful remembrance and a happy upswing These are some D&D favorite things When my life bites, when the world stings When Twitter makes me sad I simply remember those D&D things And then I don't feel so bad